I'm Andrew Faust, here with Permaculture Perspectives. And we're going to dive into the deep past and look far into the reaches of our own history and ask questions about where have we come from? What are some of the ways of understanding that emerge from a more thoughtful approach to history and the co-evolutionary process by which our species selects for particular conditions and outcomes. What is it that brings us together? What is it that creates a sense of exaltation in the cosmos as we celebrate life on planet Earth? I'm Andrew Faust, Permaculture Perspectives, and today we're going to look at Gobekli Tepe, one of my favorite ancient sites to explore. In fact, today, teaching a session at the Homestead School over here in Hurleyville, where I'm creating a permaculture educational program for grades 7 to 12, where it's a community collaborative high school where students can go to Sullivan County Community College in 11th grade and begin earning college credits, in fact, in 10th grade. And so there, teaching my students about Gobekli Tepe is an important way to give them a lens into our history, our deeper time history that is key to grasping the real, I'd say, opportunities that exist before us. I think as a, as a, a student of history, who I bring a lot of historical viewpoints, uh, information sets, and materials into our permaculture programming, into our curriculum, which I'm very proud of and think it's honest and accurate to say in this podcast that it is one of the most unique educational offerings you're going to find as an adult pursuing a broader viewpoint on the world and learning practical ways to bring the solutions that are so sorely needed into materialization helping you start entrepreneurial enterprises, helping you create networks and community organizing. These are skills that we focus on in our adult educational program, which we have been running in New York City for more than 14 years consistently. Nobody else has been offering the kind of education, in particular the Permaculture Design Certification Program, 72-hour course. We are certified by the Permaculture Institute of North America. And we teach a lot about some of the things I'm going to talk about today as important precedents for good design. Knowing more of our history is key to knowing what are the good ideas and what are the bad ideas, and knowing what to retain and what to allow to slough off and turn back into soil for building a better design.
And so Gobekli Tepe, what a powerfully, mythically potent archetype of our evolutionary journey from Paleolithic societies, as it is often described in the academic world, to Neolithic societies. This transition, you know, the more I learn about and, and continue to explore this time period, the more fascinating it becomes. Because, you know, so to, to put it in time spectrum, let's, let's place Gobekli. We're talking about roughly 9,800 BC, 11,000 years ago. And this site is the place where we have the first evidence, historical evidence, of monumental architecture. And this term, monumental architecture, is one that we'll come across throughout a vast array of materials in the world of science and archaeology. And what it's, what it's referring to is that the process by which we begin to uh, amalgamate these different storylines is a process by which we want to place in time more specifically the event that happens and this description of different periods has its usefulness but also uh, has its point of of uh, perpetuating preconceptions that aren't accurate so that being said paleolithic and neolithic the transition time period what does this look like gobekli is sitting right on this zone of transition in our collective evolutionary past. It is the first, as I mentioned so far, earliest ever found monumental architectural site. Predates domestication of plants and animals. So this is foundational to one of the first presuppositions of much of the historical narrative that's been dominant out there in the academic world, in the Western world, in the archaeological world, which is that without grain, without irrigation-based societies, without hierarchy and some kind of um, elite that oppresses a vast number of labor into servitude and putting their sweat equity into creating these monumental architectural edifices, they do not exist. This was a presupposition that was based largely on much of the evidence, which is a rational way to approach your interpretation of things. However, the, the arguably mistake that was being perpetuated by it was not continuing to stay open-minded about what may be the actual storyline is as yet unknown. And this is a classic weakness of most of Western academic university world material. They tend to, once they hit upon something that they think is a good thread to weave, then they stick with that same line of reasoning and are uh, reticent to abandon it. Gobekli Tepe, fortunately, 
kicked things off the rails in a way because the evidence cannot be refuted. The timeline cannot be refuted. We have very uh, well-respected archaeological research being done on the site. Um, I have a couple books that I'll share with you. And these will be in the description of the podcast on our SoundCloud uh, posting of it. So, Gobekli Tepe, An Introduction to the World's Oldest Temple by Avi Bachenheimer. That's spelled B-A-C-H-E-N-H-E-I-M-E-R, Bachenheimer. This did some research, been reading, looking at different books on it. This book is arguably the best book on it that I've been able to find. Excellent images, very clear descriptions. Blown away by this site. So let's talk about, get into the details of it. Gobekli, 30-ton gross load exerted on the bedrock by one of the central T-pillars inside the circle of stone pillars. It's clear that this site was a ritual center. It's clear that it's a, it's a place that has a combination of shamanism and ritual behaviors. It, it's a place where uh, ecstatic traditions, plant medicines are being imbibed along with um, ritualized behaviors that induce altered states of consciousness. There's very clear evidence of this at another site, Tia Hiwanaku, that is similar to Gobekli in that both of these sites, when we talk about a 30-ton pillar, which is part of what I want to make clear that it is truly monumental architecture, and there are many of these enclosures, these circles, um, these two pillars that are the largest in enclosure D as they refer to it, these central pillars, um, are, as I mentioned, two of the largest on the entire site, but indicative of the scale that we're talking about, 30 tons. Um, quite massive. Beautifully put together. The, the pillars, usually they have a T-stone, and that's created by placing another very large stone horizontally on top of a stone that's fairly tall and straight. Some of them are carved into a T. Some of them are put together, as I just described. So the, the, you know, Gobekli is a site where we are looking at collective rituals that are around wild animals, and it creates an organizing activity, a sort of social glue. It's a time period where we see no real evidence of violent deaths. These are hunter-gatherers. These are societies before farming. There's a degree of shared behaviors, it seems, culturally between Chahadohoyuk, a site that goes back 9,000 years ago to about... Um, to about 7,000 BC. And Chahadahoyuk and Gobekli Tepe share this 
ancestor worship and burying of the dead under the floors of the buildings. As well as this usage of the bull horns and the bull as a clear symbol of some kind of power and cultish, we would say, or meaning that it is a totem or a icon that is used in construction throughout Chahada Hoyoke, as well as we see images in Gobekli Tepe. And so I want to jump back a little earlier and share a reading from a book that, again, I'll be listing all these and showing a photo of them in the posting of the podcast. This one is called Early Humans by Nick Ashton. We're going to go back a little further in time because this description I find to be one of the most, I think, just accessible narrative flows that I've come across in the many books that I like reading on human evolution and early history. So this is the last chapter in it. Conclusion, the history of Britain and the wider world. From just under a million years ago, we get the first glimpses of small groups of people, probably Homo antecessor or pioneer man, attempting to survive in coastal grass-fringed estuaries in a land of coniferous forest populated by deer, horse, bison, mammoth, and rhinoceros. They were the most northerly people anywhere around the globe, but struggled to endure the long cold winters or compete against larger, more powerful carnivores of hyena, lion, and saber-toothed cat. Even during more temperate climates, people did not manage to gain a firm foothold in northern Europe, whether it was lack of clothing, shelter, or compete against larger, more powerful carnivores. Or the difficulties of acquiring food is not known, but they seem to have been heading along an evolutionary cul-de-sac and ultimately failed to colonize Europe. It was a newcomer from Africa, Homo heidelbergensis, who proved to be more successful. From 600,000 years ago, new stone tools called hand axes began to appear in the European record, made by these successful hunters. Certainly, by 500,000 years ago, they had reached Britain. They were the top carnivore and skilled butchers, beating other predators to the kill. Over the next 200,000 years, they made Europe their home, retreating to the south as climate cooled and heading north and further east as temperatures rose. By now, we have evidence of wooden spears for killing off prey. They had the enormous advantage of using fire, not just for warmth and protection, but also for cooking. Meat could be smoked and cured for long storage and toxic plants processed for safe eating. We also find scrapers, probably used for processing hides to make clothes or shelters. People were beginning to find ways of buffering against the effects of winter cold and to control the environment in which they lived. 
A more permanent settlement of Europe led to a local evolution. The first Neanderthals were emerging from their Heidelbergensis forebears. Shorter, stockier, stockier bodies, splayed nostrils, and more pronounced eyebrow ridges were all adaptations to cooler environments. Landscapes were also changing. From 300,000 years ago, the mammoth steppes of Africa were encroaching on the deciduous forests of Europe, drawing with them their large herds of mammoth, bison, and horse. The more open landscapes led to wider territories and more specialized hunting, helped by new stone points that can be hafted to make more effective spears. Hunting larger herds required teamwork. With better communication and cooperation, the dynamics of social life were slowly changing. The Neanderthals flourished across large swaths of Europe, retreating to warmer refugia during the harsher climates. But Britain was by now an island during high sea levels, so we only see small populations arriving during times of slightly lower levels, when the waters retreated from the North Sea Basin. The climate eventually became too cold for survival, and when climate once again warmed, Britain's land links to mainland Europe was, were once again severed. The result was a Britain bereft of humans for almost 150,000 years. Neanderthals continued to thrive in other parts of Europe through both warm and cooler climates. As both temperatures and sea level dropped 65,000 years ago, Neanderthals returned to Britain, perhaps now equipped with a better survival kit for coping with treeless steppe tundra. They may have just been seasonal hunting parties during warmer summer months, or stayed a little longer, using the safety and warmth of caves. Woolly mammoths, woolly rhinoceros, and bison were among their prey. But changes were afoot elsewhere in the world. In Africa, a few human species have been evolving and by 60,000 years ago had started to spread into the Middle East and further into Asia. They were anatomically modern humans, our own ancestors, Homo sapiens. Soon they would arrive in Southeast Europe. Their tools were made on long stone blades fashioned into points, scrapers, and knives, and then mounted onto shafts and handles. They used ornamentation with beads and pendants. By 40,000 years ago, they had reached Western Europe and even ventured into Britain. The first figurative art was beginning to emerge with carved antler and ivory, and before long, the depiction of animals in caves. But what of the resident Neanderthals? The result was certainly their rapid extinction, but the cause is less clear. Rather than direct conflict with modern humans, Neanderthal demise was more likely to be due to their marginalization in the landscape. Although there was some interaction as shown by DNA studies, modern humans perhaps operated in larger groups with more complex social structures that gave them greater flexibility in times of change. A slight downturn in climate may have led to a shortage of resources and modern humans were better at coping with the change. The result was the difficult survival of Neanderthals in only the peripheral areas of their range, which led to the rapid extinction of a highly successful European species. For the newcomers, a succession of different populations can be recognized across Europe, each with their own distinctive material culture. 
Climate was still cold, but occasionally they reached Britain, leaving behind stone points, knives, and occasional tools made from bone and antler, or beads made from perforated shell. Although there was abundant prey of mammoth, bison, and reindeer, just like the earlier Neanderthals, modern humans also struggled to stay for long in the harsh, cold tundras of Britain. By 15,000 years ago, the climate was beginning to warm. The highly successful hunters of southwest Europe extended their territories to the north. Reindeer, red deer, and horse were their prime prey using spears tipped with lethal barbed points projected with decorated spear throwers. Many daily items of bone, antler, and ivory were carved or engraved into animal forms, and we see the magnificence of painted caves such as Las Cal and Altamira, together with occasional examples further north. And so there I'm going to leave off our time with Early Humans by Nick Ashton. Excellent read. Really enjoyed this book. Very well-written, good historical footing, and really paints a picture for us of what that time period looked like and that transition looked like. So our next piece that segues us into the time period that begins to get into when Gobekli Tepe is constructed and Chahadohoyuk shortly thereafter becomes inhabited. Chahadohoyuk is our first city that has ever been found. And it was a, a collection of, say, five to 8,000 people that lived in that same spot for almost 1,500 years of time. So pretty long time period to be living in the same place. And it's, it's over 9,000 years old. Um, it's a collective with no ceremonial center. Each house has its own religious section. There's no real neighborhoods in Chahadohoyuk, no council, no central authority. In fact, Ian Hodder and other archaeologists involved with that site describe the culture as far as they can construe it from decades of archaeological work on it. They describe it as aggressively egalitarian, very complicated society, hunting, medicine, clans, houses would be lived in for 50 to 100 years. Bullhorns are very prominent, symbolically rich part of the house. So a lot of this information is from a video series by Scott McCarran called Origins of Civilization. Uh, he's a professor at Bowdoin College. That's on uh, the earlier version of great courses that's out there that you can find. All egalitarian, no evidence of warfare. And this time period, this period of Gobekli Tepe, almost 11,000 years ago, Chahadoyok, 9,000 years ago, then brings us up to the time period of the Ubaid, U-B-A-I-D, which is where we're going to wrap up today, but I'm going to read some materials to begin to outline what happens just right before Gobekli, Chahadol, and the emergence of the Ubayid, which is another fascinating period we'll look more at as much as I can find on it. It's a, it's a period of history that is difficult to find much writing about it, but it spans quite a span. It spans all, all the way from, we're looking at uh, 
58, 6,500 6, years ago up to about 3,500 years ago. So 3,000 years. Through this entire time period of 3,000 years, we see no evidence of warfare, no evidence of coercive authority, um, rain-fed egalitarian societies uh, that begin to produce excesses of flax and have export economies of linen in the southern Mesopotamian. Um, so we'll be looking at these examples from our past that help us to see other possibilities of who we are, where we've come from, and thereby where we can go in terms of our precedents clearly don't define all of our opportunities, but they do help us to see them as more accessible when those precedents show that, in fact, human beings are very often living in ways that are um, respectful of everyone's rights to almost a uh, degree of dogmatism as far as how. This was something that I also enjoyed that's a theme in The Dawn of Everything, which is that many of the American Indian tribes in North America before colonialism came and decimated those cultures and societies. They, many of them, Iroquois in particular, found it to be the most insulting thing to be asked to behave in a manner that subjugated themselves to another person in some way. Everybody had mutual respect for one another. And this is true of apparently an entire time period, 3,000 years of history, but conceivably if we go back as early as Chahadol and Gobekli, we're actually talking about 5,000 years of larger, higher-density human settlements, early history of human highly complex societies that are creating monumental works of architecture that today, when they're unearthed, are fascinating examples of our collective, collaborative, um, celebrative vitality that is often not what we hear as the framing of who we are and this idea that cities were uh, all founded on oppression. So this book that I want to share a section from and then wrap up this podcast for today and look forward to building on these themes as we go. This book is called The Long Summer, How Climate Changed History by Brian Fagan. And I want to be sure and give a shout out to Brian because, you know, I feel like I know him because I've read so many of his books, but I don't. And I'm, I'm going to reach out and write an email to him. Maybe we can have him on the podcast for an interview. So I've found his books to be really insightful, excellent researched, some of the best latest science, and to me, some of the most interesting science and relevant to the permaculture objective of creating a healthy and prosperous society and future for ourselves. So Brian Fagan 
is one of the world's leading archaeological writers and emeritus professor of anthropology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He is, and this book is from 2006, so he's written more, but here's a, a short list for you. He is the author of Floods, Famines, and Emperors, The Little Ice Age, Before California. Uh, some of the ones I've enjoyed, he wrote more recently than this one that we're looking at, which is The Long Summer, How Climate Changed Civilization. He's written since then uh, Intimate Bond, which is about the uh, domestication of animals. He wrote a book just called Fish, that's about the history of fishing as an evolutionary perspective. Really excellent writer, Brian Fagan. So here we are, first chapter, the late Ice Age Orchestra, bringing us right up to the footsteps of Gobekli and Chahadohoyuk. We know of these unpredictable shifts from the deep occupation levels of Dordogne rock shelters Above the 18,000-year horizon, reindeer bones become less plentiful, while those of other animals such as red deer, aurochs, bison, and chamois become more important. Food could be taken literally at one's doorstep. The great rock shelter of La Guerre Halt in the Vezera Valley lay close to a river ford. Here, each fall, the reindeer crowded through the valley as the hunters watched their approach. As they crossed, the band moved in for the slaughter. The level ground in front of the shelter was a convenient killing field, now marked by reindeer skeletons found between the river and the long-occupied overhang. As the climate warmed and the reindeer migrations ebbed, the Cro-Magnons turned effortlessly to nuts and other edible plants throughout the ever-lengthening summer. We can imagine the hunters in search of different prey, flitting from tree to tree in the valley forests while, where aurochs lurked, hunting them in winter when snow muffled their footsteps. They would move quietly to the edge of clearings among the trees where the fierce animals pawed the deep snow for grass, drive them into sturdy nets, or dispatch them with razor-sharp antler-tipped spears propelled by sturdy throwing sticks. In these first millennia of the Ice Age, Cro-Magnon society achieved an elaboration and sophistication unknown in colder times. Ceremonial practices flourished in dark cave chambers where bison cavorted on rocky walls. Then suddenly, around 15,000 years ago, the warming accelerated dramatically and the ceremonies petered out. The ancient Ice Age bestiary of mammoth and bison, arctic fox and reindeer, migrated northward with the retreating tundra. Birch and deciduous forests spread rapidly into the deep river valleys. Some of the bands moved northward following their quarry. Others abandoned the great rock shelters and dispersed into much smaller bands, living off solitary deer and other forest animals, and more and more off plant foods. Only occasionally did people occupy a Cro-Magnon shelter, and then only for a few years, camping on the thick layers of occupation debris left by their forgotten predecessors. No one visited the deep caves. Shamans no longer penetrated the darkness in solitary vision quests. The dancing bison and reindeer on the walls faded behind the slowly forming stalagmites. 
by 12,000 years ago, the last late Ice Age Cro-Magnon hunting societies had vanished in the face of natural global warming to be rediscovered by archaeologists only in the 1860s. And that's where we're going to wrap up for today with the long summer, how climate change civilization, it's these examinations into our past that I want to explore with you here and to share with you some of my favorite source materials and encourage you to check out some of these books and these authors because I feel both that they're inherently interesting and in addition an important part of a understanding a more in-depth appreciation for who we are, where we've come from, and what the possibilities and opportunities are for redefining some of the historical narrative of what we consider to be the foundations of cities and the foundations of civilization, and begin to recognize that historically we have a great deal to learn from nomadic peoples, from people who left no trace of their life way, or very little of one. And so in the next podcast, we'll look at Nomads, Anthony Satin's latest book, and we'll look at some of James C. Scott's book, Against the Grain, which we visited before in this podcast, and we'll be looking at new sections of that book that we didn't explore previously. And I look forward to hearing from you about other topics that you'd like me to discuss in here and potential people to have on the podcast to interview and have some great conversations with. Thank you for listening. Andrew Faust, Permaculture Perspectives. Check out our next Permaculture Design Certification course beginning February 11th, fully online and thereby fully accessible to the world to learn this innovative and deep-time educational offering. PermacultureNewYork.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.